Hey y'all, it's Luke. Very, very excited today. I just got my second vaccine shot. So I'm trying to get this intro done before I hit what I have heard is the six to 12 hour window after the shot when you become extremely sick for like 24 hours or 18 hours or something. So trying to get this in so I can get this thing scheduled and live before I might have to shrivel up in a ball for a little while, but I am incredibly excited to be among the vaccinated and to finally have this thing in my body. And I would have kept this intro short anyways, because the conversation we're having this week with State Representative Marcus Riccelli of the 3rd Legislative District, which covers most of Spokane, a good chunk of Spokane, was long and kind of goes over a lot of the different stuff that's been happening at the state legislature this session. We discuss, in roughly this order, public health reform, which does a number of different things that I did not realize about. I was primarily interested because it sort of forces reform upon local health district jurisdictions to hopefully prevent what happened with Bob Lutz this summer. But it also does other things that I was not aware of that are actually pretty cool and help not merely keep the public health officials that are good that we have from coming under fire by politicized forces, but it also actually probably makes our public health system a little bit better and a little bit more sort of professionalized. Uh, And we'll explain what that means a little bit later. Second is the first and probably many steps of hopefully getting close to universal health care, at least in the state of Washington, if not in the country at large, right? So it's, it's probably not going to happen at the national level, but there are steps being studied at the state to try to do something like single payer or, or something similar by, I think, 2025. So a lot of work to get done, but it could be in, in as soon as four years if all the studies go well. So we talk about that in in decent amount of detail too. I should say that like <laughs> Marcus is so steeped in these things and uses a lot of legislative jargon. I tried my best to sort of clarify, but I also was I was feeling maybe that my own personal knowledge was a little bit not up to the task. It's hard, y'all. This stuff's complicated. The third thing capital gains tax was called and sort of debated about as the uh, billionaire tax. We talk about that at length. I get a little bit heated. He gets a little bit heated. It's good. It's a really good convo. And then on top of that, there were a few other things that Rep Riccelli was really excited about and wanted to talk about too. The last thing we talk about, save the best for last folks. Are you ready for it? The downtown stadium. He came out publicly in favor of the downtown stadium, which has been like the third rail of Spokane politics for the last three weeks or so. You know, the controversy is that we took a public vote on this three years ago. It was just roundly defeated. And now city leaders, certain city leaders are wanting to sort of bring it back and trying to sort of put pressure, let's say, in a nice way. But it's it's undeniably trying to put pressure on the school district to consider that instead of rebuilding Joe Alvey Stadium, which is way up in northwest Spokane. So We talked about that, and it was a really good conversation. I sort of voiced my qualms with the project and my concerns. I have serious concerns about it. And he shot back with what he thought were the positives of the project, and it it turned into a really good conversation. So, And it also, as a fellow uh, Gonzaga grad, Rapper Shelley was able to get into a little bit of philosophy, uh, the idea of the public commons, the idea of civic spaces, and what it might take to get, you know, conversations like this, even when they're tough, are going to be necessary for us to kind of, sorry, mom, unfuck our democracy. <laughs> so that's, it turned, it's a really, really good conversation, but it's also kind of long. So I don't want to belabor this intro at all. To that end quickly, did you realize that if everybody who currently subscribes to this newsletter and podcast chipped in to support the damn thing, well, one, I would stop asking you for money all the time. Two, I could probably hire somebody because that's how many people subscribe to this thing. Yikes, that had big Bradley Whitford and get out. Uh, vibes, but I'm not going to censor myself. I'm going to take that one on the chin and move on. We keep it free because we don't believe that people's ability to pay should dictate their ability to keep up with the news in their city that they love and want to be a part of. And we want, much to the conversation we just had with Rep Riccelli, we want everyone to be able to contribute and participate and be informed in the debates that we have as a society And so we don't want to paywall that ever. But if you have the means and you like what we're doing and you want to see it grow, uh, please consider supporting us. Rangemedia.co slash subscribe is the link that'll get you there. And uh, you know what? That's all the pitching I'm going to do today. I'm going to let the value of this conversation with Marcus Riccelli, state rep for most of Spokane City, speak for itself. Demonstrate the value. 
talking about a lot of state level stuff and one very important local issue coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 32. I got as far as Capitol Hill. You've been in office since, I think, 2013. Correct me if I'm wrong about any of this stuff. Correct. Because I was using uh, obvious uh, available internet info, which is not always reliable. (laughs) You took office, as far as I can tell, on the most auspicious day of the year, January 14th, which just happens to be my birthday. Well, I think that was was, uh, meant to be. Yeah. You worked uh, as Senator Maria Cantwell's Eastern Washington director, and then you were also a senior policy advisor to Lisa Brown when she was the state Senate majority leader. And when you're not in Olympia, you are a community relations ma- manager at Chaz Health. Is that right? Yeah, that switched this summer. I was a project manager up until this summer. Okay, cool. So you work in the field, and one of Chaz's main focuses is, is the poor and uninsured. They were literally created to help folks that don't have insurance still access health care. So I can imagine you've seen firsthand the impacts of public health policy on the most at-risk people. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was House Bill 1152, Uh, which is, they kind of have weird titles, Supporting Measures to Create Comprehensive Public Health Districts. How much of that was informed by your work and and what does it do? First of all, it was governor request language as it started. And the reason it has the title it does is because the governor rolled out, what he wanted to do is regionalize public health. That was not well received. Um, There wasn't a lot of stakeholder work. So since then, the bill has transformed quite a bit. Regionalization of healthcare is off the table. There was just a lot of pushback of, kind of ending local health jurisdictions yeah. and that centralized piece. I jumped in because I was working on the balancing of our, our public health boards. Right. And just with my work on healthcare, I saw this intersection. So I, I jumped in, but my start was, you know, as the bill was rolled out. And admittedly, I think a lot of some of the stakeholdering that we have done over the last couple of months could have been done, you know, starting in June. But I think we've come together and worked on it. So it's, it's changed quite a bit from when it was introduced to, to has it, how it passed off the House floor. So the bill that passed then, like what problems with public health districts does it seek to address? Well, the problem that it seeks to address is that everybody anywhere, whether you're in, you know, Republic or Spokane or Seattle or Dayton, you should have a standard level of public health service. And um, it's just like public safety and we should standardize that level and you should be able to get that and it should be effective, efficient, and there should be adequate funding um, for these uh, jurisdictions to provide that. And COVID unfortunately has really brought to light what we all knew, Foundational Public Health Steering Committee. Others have talked for over a decade about how um, we have woefully underfunded public health and I take responsibility. The legislature fell asleep at the the will. Democrats uh, and Republicans have just underfunded public health And we're trying to right that wrong. Is it safe to say that the firing of Bob Lutz was the wake-up call or was it something else or? I think the pandemic was the wake-up call. I think that you've seen different levels of service in different areas, different approaches. And I think we need to localize public health, but there are some things that we need to be coordinated. So I've said all along this bill seeks to enhance supporting. So it should be, our public health should be state supported, regionally coordinated and locally implemented to get the job done. And We've seen in a lot of places that didn't occur. You know, part of 1152 is taking a model that they did in Oregon and putting in statute a public health advisory board. Mm -hmm. And one of their roles would be to do a look back during the pandemic. So we're not ill prepared. But the firing of Bob Lutz uh, was one of the reasons I got heavily engaged, because I think the way that politics has infected public health has been really tragic. So I think the thing that I'm I'm just trying to sort of for the listener get down to like what does the bill practically do? And the thing that I noticed was like it it changes the makeup of of the health boards. Is that the main thing that it does or does it do other stuff? What I really want people to focus on, I think that's an important part, but the okay. big thing is it puts in regional shared services. So we'll have a, a regional health officer, regional coordination of direct services and shared services. But what I think is the most important thing is it triggers The only way this goes into effect, these shared services, if there's a doubling of public health. So we spend about $28 million every biennium on public health. This would raise that number to a minimum of $60 million. And that is my my goal. So take all the the policy goals aside, 
really the funding piece is critical in this. Those sort of regional jurisdictions, those regional directors, are those going to be appointed positions? Are they going to be sort of each region sort of gets to come together and pick their own director? How is that going to work? No, um, we toyed with a model kind of like our educational service districts or our area agencies on aging where there would actually be more centralized uh, function and there would be a a board that oversee them. And that was really, there was a lot of pushback. So these um, regional health officers and regional coordinators would be Department of Health employees. Uh, But one of the cool things I think is like for the, the health boards is that if there's a vacancy, a leave of absence, or even a firing, this regional health officer that a state, um, a state employee would step in. And I okay. think that's important considering what we went through in yeah, Spokane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess like all I'm trying to get to, and I know I'm not trying to get you to throw regional partners under the bus, local partners under the bus. I guess what I'm trying to figure out, because like my big concern as an outsider who sort of got pulled into the news cycle we all witnessed is like, you know, it's probably doesn't make sense to get politics completely out of public health, but it's like, there's a super majority of politicians and like basically county commission control effectively based on the number of seats that they either occupy or kind of decide uh, the at large stuff. So I guess what I'm just trying to figure out is, yeah, is it, is this going to be a more professional as opposed to politicized as it sort of gets delivered to the end user, I guess. Yeah, I think this sets up for better health outcomes. The balancing of our health boards means health professionals, public health professionals, uh, consumers with lived experience, and business members uh, in our community, et cetera, that we have this diverse, these diverse experiences that are brought there. I mean, to have just elected officials, many who have no healthcare background or experience in public health, making all the decisions, to me, just seems like a huge mistake. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right to sort of to take that one as a legislator. Cause like I, when I started digging in, I'm like, I can't believe this is the way we're running public health in this state. Like, I just can't believe it. The thing that I was, that was so striking to me is I I sat in on the state level hearing that authorized the investigation and, and more so than anything else, what struck me was that that state level board was entirely made up of either professionals or end users, people who experience healthcare in the state. And that seemed to me like so much more sane as a, as a model because it's people who actually are doing the work. Oh no. Did I lose him? Listener? I had lost him. I lost him real good. Let's just fill these gaps here with a little walking around music real quick. He'll be back. I'm sure. This is actually taking a surprisingly long time. I hope he's okay. not going to force you to listen to this whole thing. (laughs) Just fast forward a little bit. (laughs) Damn it. Oh, nope. That's me laughing to keep from crying after three minutes of silence. Hold on. Let me keep going. A full five and a half minutes later, and he's back. Oh, man. Man, I do not. (laughs) No, we lost power at my house. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. How did that happen? I I don't know. (laughs) Don't. The place shut down. I don't know. We were, for a moment, you know, like the powers that be were like, don't be talking public health. I know, man. I feel like we're just up against so many barriers here, Marcus. I've been, I'm like in cold sweats for the last three minutes. Like what? Oh, I got to tell you, you know, in this scenario, trust me, there's nothing any good tech can do to overcome a power outage. So don't worry about it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that was the issue. I'm just like, oh man, the most sinking feeling. So all I was really saying, and just to wrap this up, because we got a lot to get to, so I don't want to belabor this. And I got some time. I got some time. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, it's like that it was the state level board that sort of like opened my eyes to what a sort of a less politicized board might look like. And again, like all I was, I was viewing this, our local board at a time of political crisis. Right. So I'd also don't want to like assume that that's the way it always is over there. But in as, insofar as like the state board was like all health professionals, there might've been an elected guy, but he was like a health worker from like one of the local, one of the West side tribes. And then it was people who experience uh, public health uh, as, as sort of citizens on this board. And it struck me as just like so much more humane and sane and like all of those things. So I guess, I don't know if I'm looking for like what sort of a response I'm looking for, but that just seemed like what we should be getting to. And it, hopefully it seems like that's what this bill is trying to do. Absolutely. In fact, um, part of the learning I've had along the way, we've done a, just a ton of work, a lot of meetings. I met with some county commissioners, actually it was a representative from the health board of Clickitat. Okay. And she talked about how at first 
she was advising them and it was like an advisory role, but then they added to their health board. These click attack County commissioners were all ranchers and she was a healthcare professional. She joined the, the board and they did that, I believe by ordinance there. And at first the, the click attack County commissioners were very suspect. Now those are their go-to people for wow. public health issues. And that awesome. is kind of what I think we should have all of our eyes um, open to the fact that, that expertise and the lived experience piece, whether it be adding tribes to ensuring they represent our board, uh, to making sure that people like real consumers with real lived experience, like WIC, SNAP, et cetera, people yeah. who um, interact with our public health system uh, can give their input. That's how we're going to attack social determinants of health and, and right. produce overall uh, health equities. So it sounded like it was, it came from the initial impetus came from the governor. So it's, it's passed out of the house. It's in committee at the Senate. Is it, is it safe to say that this has a good chance of passing and it'll, and it'll get signed into law? Well, it's hard to look in the crystal ball. I mean, I think it has some, some challenges uh, potentially in the healthcare committee. Um, as it passed out, I was able to work with the ranking member and uh, a Republican member from the Vancouver area. So I had two Republican votes out, which was good. It made it bipartisan, but I also lost two Democrats on the way out who had some concerns. Okay. So there's that, and, and you know, there's a lot of power in those committees in the makeup. And so right now we're working the committees. I do want to say that 1152 was separate to a bill I introduced, 1110, which was only on the health board makeup and composition. Oh, okay. And, and the reason that the composition of health boards got rolled in 1152 is because I think this broader conversation about you know, moving towards fully funding public health, et cetera, and, and doing it in a more effective way is really important. And so a lot of the detractors of 1152 were like, okay, well, we don't really like 1152 where it was introduced. And they started getting behind 1110 to kill 1152. And I think oh, they're yeah. both conversations. Sorry to use a lot of numbers. Um, no, that is totally so, Olympia speak, but. Right. So it was basically enrolling the two together. You were trying, yeah. you were hoping to sort of just like get support behind like a sort of a more of an omnibus bill or, or just a bill that like covers more things rather than like letting people pick and choose things they were comfortable exactly. with. Exactly. They were using it as tactics potentially to kill the bill 1152. And I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, including the opportunity for doubling the funding of public health. Yeah, absolutely. Is it correct to say, generally speaking, that the Senate is a little bit more conservative than the House on most things? Yes. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to, you saw what happened with capital gains. It barely got out. Yeah. Um, that's great that it did. 25 votes. Um, we've passed things. We've had votes for a number of things, um, low carbon fuel standards, et cetera. Um, yeah. I would say that that's a fair assessment. Okay, cool. I and I want to talk about capital gains and more a little bit later, but I want to keep on the, on the healthcare thing. So this legislative session's already been a banger. Because like I just keep hearing about tons of interesting, fascinating stuff getting passed. The next thing I wanted to talk about was Senate Bill 5399, tantalizingly named, concerning the creation of a universal health care commission. So my first question is, Marcus, y'all trying to do universal health care over there? I support it. Yeah, I mean, I think cascade care was the first step, but I, I support single payer. I support universal health care. I think you can be both. You can be supporting universal health care, how we get there, but also support steps that improve health care access. As it is. As, at times, um, folks will criticize um, some of us who are working on interim steps as well for not being aggressive enough, et cetera. And, I'm, and I say, we still got to bring people on. Medicaid expansion, amazing. Yeah. Cascade care puts us on a path towards, I believe, single payer. Yeah. If we could do it in one swoop, I would take that vote in a heartbeat. I already had this uh, being like, you got to take this slow, walk me through it, speak slowly. Cause I don't like this, this seems so hopelessly complicated and I've never even heard of cascade care. So I don't even know what that is. This is just the first step. This does not like create Medicare for all or anything. So like maybe we could just sort of talk through what this initial thing does and, and what were the precursors to it. And then we'll sort of get to what comes next. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about the precursors because that is some of the frustration. I mean, this is very complex stuff, right? It's not flip the switch. And so I think it is important to know that there was a lot of work and I want to respect that work to get to this point. And those folks, that report from an earlier study came out in January of 2021. Okay. So you have folks who want to, who say, we have what we need now for information. Now we need to move forward with the whole Washington folks um, yeah. with that proposal. And then you have lawmakers and in the Senate, they pushed out this next step to go deeper in their minds to really study how do we set it up? How do we bring 
us to uh, a system that is more equitable and that ensures access and affordable access to quality health care for every Washingtonian. And that's certainly what I support and a number of my colleagues support. But we heard really compelling testimony. There are people that are struggling right now that shouldn't be going to the emergency room, that they let things go way too long yeah. because they just can't afford and they're, they're scared of what that means. We know that bankruptcy from medical debt is still one of the number one causes of bankruptcy in our country. It seems ridiculous that one, I think it's not good economic policy to have people using the emergency room as their primary care doc. So, so this proposal, I think, it strengthens our move toward universal health care. It puts in the kind of analysis that we need. It gets the right people around the table to, to further the discussion. Uh, and even uh, the, the health insurance industry, surprisingly, yesterday when the bill was being heard, testified as other. They have some reasons that you would think, you know, this would be something they would be running from. But the fact they want to have the conversation, I'm not putting a lot of stock into that, but yeah. it was nice to hear them not say opposed. <laughs> right. Okay, that's interesting. So because of the national conversation we've been having since like 2016, people might understand something, a national idea like Medicare for all better than they understand what what is possible at a state level. So, you know, a national healthcare system that covers literally everyone, which is free at the point of care, more or less eliminating private insurance companies and employer-based healthcare. So how does what we can do as a state, and again, I know what you just got done saying was like, we don't know exactly how this is going to be implemented yet, but like looking at all the possible horizons, like how how can what we do as a state compare to something like Medicare for all and what can we make similar and what is going to have to be different? First and foremost, we see how our Apple health, our Medicaid system has enrolled just a ton more people who needed care and provide them access. I think we build off that. One of the areas I think we've, that's been a big mess has been, you know, we have our PEB, which is our public employees benefits plan and then SEB, which is newly created for our educators. So I, I'm glad we consolidate our educators in one healthcare plan. I'm glad we have our state employees. I say, and this might not be popular with some of our educators and with local control, I say we bring those two plans underneath. We increase that buying power. We look to how we can bring that within Medicaid. And now we have all these lives covered. We can drive down costs for pharmaceutical costs. We can hmm improve care. One of the problems we have with Medicaid, though, is just the reimbursement rates are low. So we have to figure out how we can pay more. And I think that that's fair to our providers. Yeah, right. And so that's, I think getting folks under the umbrella is one of the first steps. And I think we are heading in that direction. So one of the things that I've been talking about is let's consider at least having the conversation with our public employees and state employees about how we bring that into one plan now that we've moved all of our educators. I mean, before that, we had hundreds of different health plans for educators across the state, depending on what school district. It just wasn't efficient or effective. So that's one of the ways I think we can move in that direction and get more lives covered. The common argument against this idea is that choice is a good thing and we want people to be able to have choice in their health care. As a guy who... somebody who's trying to employ just like six people or sorry to cover healthcare for like six people. It's insanely expensive. The care kind of sucks. We've bought in at an incredibly high level because we don't want our employees to be sort of shackled with high deductibles, but there's like, I don't think there's a single plan. You know, my choices go from bad to worse. So like what good is choice when those are the choices? Absolutely. Uh, this is going back a couple of years. So the data is a little outdated, but I was sitting in the healthcare committee and we were told that, On the exchange, over 75,000 people had a plan with a deductible of over $7,500. Like that just is not affordable healthcare. And particularly I'm interested and have been working on that piece between 138 and 200% of the federal poverty level. And so now you're kind of bringing it full circle to another bill that I introduced, which is getting stuck a little bit. um, And Senator June Robinson, and that was a, a tax on covered lives. Mm -hmm. which would have really um, helped fund public health. But one of the pieces that I want to do was a straight up state subsidy for folks on the exchange. And uh, it's clearly not affordable, particularly for folks between 138, 200, 250% of the federal poverty level. It's not affordable for employers that are trying to do the right thing and help folks out. And I appreciate you all doing the right thing. I appreciate, you know, when I talk to um, the owner of Swinging Doors, who's uh, someone who we have good discussions with, but he talks about like, I'm trying to do the right thing and it's it's killing me at every front. I I hear these things and we got to make the change. As a guy who was a trivia champion in high school at the Swinging Doors, uh, and no, that's my, those are my stomping grounds, my man. 
That guy is not a bleeding heart, Bernie Kratt progressive. Oh, no. And actually, when I first ran for office, I, we had some conversations. He said, I'm, I'm supporting you just to keep my friends questioning where I'm at on the political <laughs> dial. So, <laughs> But I'll tell you what I did do, Luke, and, and I, hopefully you'll appreciate this. I put the swinging doors in my commercial because so much of our political power had been uh, south of the river, yeah, et right. cetera. And um, I'm a north side kid. And yeah, again, for, far north, right? Like yeah. uh, when I where I grew up, Mead. But we got a lot going on north of the river too. And I don't like people to forget about that. Yeah, no, for sure. Appreciate that solidarity. <laughs> um, okay. So part of what I, you know, having grown up north of the river, I sometimes feel like the, the more conservative stuff ringing around in my head. So I don't want to make too much of a big deal about this. But what our version of this could look like is basically kind of like Medicaid for all. Or what would it look like? Well, and the piece that where uh, folks push back on is even the move to cascade care, the, the private insurers have a piece in that. And that is, okay. a, a, that is a, a sticking point for a, a number of folks. So I think what we're doing here with this universal healthcare work group and, and developing this plan and how that would be financed is really that would take that piece out of the equation. You know, right now we're stair-stepping towards getting more people covered, making it more affordable. And it's working, the system that we're doing. Because Cascade Care, what it said is, if you want to have access to all those consumers on the exchange, you also have to offer a Medicaid plan so that we can have network adequacy. Okay. And by doing that, they enhance their networks and that's driving down costs there and have more lives covered, et cetera. So, um, but what we're trying to do here, I think, is evaluate how we find the financing mechanism to really take all the profiteering out of healthcare and yeah. put it into people. Right. And that's what I support. And here again, I'm like, I just have to continue admitting gaps in my knowledge. But Vermont did single payer, I think, in 2011. And the narrative that I had always heard until very recently was that it failed. But more recently, I've heard a counter narrative that said it didn't fail. It was killed by the private healthcare lobby and conservatives. So I don't know if one or both of those are true. But like, what's your guys' plan to like make this sustainable and then also keep from getting, you know, sort of death by a thousand cuts from lobbyists and other interests? Well, it has to work for employers. Employers have to buy in. They got to be supportive and see a system that works that will save them money and have a workforce that will be healthier for it. Yeah. And maybe it's just the pitch with them on their bottom line uh, is better because they have a healthier workforce. But we know that we lose all kinds of productivity. And I don't want to, you know, that's not my argument. I just, I just think bringing them under the fold is hugely important. Yeah, right. um, what you see in like Vermont, there's a lot of money being made. There is a lot totally. of money being made. And so, you know, those folks have 10 lobbyists to every, you know, one white hat group and organization and yeah. they understand what's at stake. And, and so it's not surprising. I think the opportunity to talk about on a national stage with the Biden administration is, is crucial. And, you know, we look at systems that we could build off on and people can have their criticism toward the VA. But what do they have? They have electronic medical records. Um, <laughs> it's David. Right. They've embraced, you know, I know you're a big supporter of digital equity and broadband. They've embraced telehealth. Yeah. They say to their providers, X percentage of your visits must be telehealth because it provides that kind of access. Yeah. And um, that's something I'd love to talk about, too. I got a couple of things cooking on telehealth. But okay. um, yeah. And I mean, I, just the last thing on that, because it's so infuriating to me, I would actually pay slightly more than we're currently paying, which is too much money, to be clear just for the ease of knowing that like people are covered. I don't have to think about it as an employer. And on top of that, like I've always felt, and this is, I think one of the ways that private healthcare is sort of a trap. If you're in a bad job or you're in a job that's not working for you anymore, or you just have you know life realities that need to change. Like how much pain is caused by people staying in bad situations because they get some modicum of coverage and, and you, there's always Cobra, but Cobra is often oh, way more expensive. I've been there. And it, then it's the onus is entirely on the person. So that, you know, it, it feels like you're doubling or tripling your healthcare because there is, you know, employers do pay in some aspect of the system. So it's like that always felt so gross to me because like, isn't it, I don't want people sticking around if they don't like working for with us. <laughs> Right. Because they're like worried about their health and their safety, you know, and their family's health, health and safety. Well, the, the other thing too, Luke, is we're all paying for the people that aren't covered too. We just don't uh, realize it. Yeah, we, yeah. we don't realize it. And that's what's a really frustrating piece of this. But what I'll say is systematically, we got to decide, are we going to embrace truly value-based coverage or do we want to stick in a fee-for-service model? The value-based from a health standpoint is so much better treating the whole person, mental health, oral health, physical health, um, making sure that people are taken care of, but we're stuck in this model and it's a grind because there's just 
so much money being made by so many people. And look, let's keep our eyes open to the fact Spokane's based a lot of our well-being on a robust healthcare sector. So that's a real look in the mirror, too, that we have to um, consider. But I think at the end of the day, it's just a fundamental decision to move towards value-based payment so that we're actually talking about wellness and not treating sickness. The other thing that gets conflated in these in these arguments is that like people like, and this has been borne out by surveys left and right across the nation, and I'm sure it would be borne out in, in, a, in a hyper-localized survey of like Spokane County or something. It's like people like their doctors, they don't necessarily like their health plan. And in failing to uh, separate those two, we've created, I think, more of a controversy than there probably needs to be. Because like, I like my doctor, the ones that I have. It's also hard under our current system to find a primary care provider. I literally have not had one of those for years because they're just so hard to find. So there's massive gaps everywhere. But it's like, I think insurance companies and the the for-profit model of private insurance has been able to sort of piggyback off of people's warm feelings about their actual providers. Right. And I think uh, it's one, the primary care piece, I think, is huge and that people struggle with that. And I think um, you shouldn't go to the exchange and be like, I have to pick this plan because I got to stick with who I want. And all these things change every year. And we make it so complex and hard for folks. And and that is just really taking the money out. I will say too, my little pitch too, is that, you know, Chaz has plenty of primary care providers. Come on, join us, Luke. We'll get you signed up. All right, man. I will. A lot of people think, you know, because we do serve a lot of our most vulnerable, that there's some sort of idea that there's a different level of care. I I, I contend that we have some of the best primary care providers around. So just oh, a little pitch. That would certainly be convenient. You. Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> we have, actually, this con- we're done. I'm actually going to go uh, make an appointment. Uh, okay. So the next thing I want to talk about, you already brought up, was capital gains. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about other stuff you're excited about, but I, I really wanted to talk about this. Um, it got messaged as basically like a billionaire tax, but it seems more complicated than that. So so what does it do and who will it most affect? Well, I, I, I contend it, it will affect some of our most wealthiest that need to pay their fair share. But I will say it, it didn't pass kind of as desired. There was an emergency clause on it so that it could go into effect sooner. The way it passed now, if we pass it out in its current form uh, without the emergency clause, it will likely get challenged at the ballot, which is concerning to me because it's very hard to, to uh, message to the voting public. Um, you got a lot of people who actually would benefit from things being funded, which we're going to work to fund the working families tax credit, etc. that will when you use that word, like this is an income tax and I, I contend it's not, but plenty do. Yeah, right. um, really it's, uh, it's, it's taxing the most wealthy in our state and in a way that makes them pay their fair share and trying to bring some balance back. And uh, I'm shocked to know that in Spokane County, you know, our medium family household income is around $45,000 in the state. It's around $77,000. Wow. It's a big difference. And uh, there's a big gap. We have two of the poorest census tracts in our state right here. And so the money that that revenue brings in and kind of changes the regressivity in a way and puts us on a trend. And it's actually, you know, it, it does. It's like, can we move towards a progressive tax system? And this is really held up as a move in that direction that can show, show how we've changed the conversation. You know, whether it holds up at the ballot if it's passed as is or not i you know that's concerning because that could set back this movement towards restructuring our tax system when people say capital gains you don't really necessarily know what it means but like capital gains are if you have a certain if you own something that has a certain amount of value and then it gains in value you gain capital as opposed to wages like the money you make for just working your job then you get taxed on whatever gains your capital makes so this is not for normal people with normal jobs that don't have massive investments. It's not for, it's not going to be taxing people's retirement accounts. It's a tax on the gains of capital, which are tend to be, it's like you got a bunch of stock and then that stock, like Elon Musk just, you know, quadrupled or sextupled his wealth, (laughs) which was based, I'm guessing the majority of his wealth is held in stock or in equity in companies. Like that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about taxing people's wages, right? Absolutely. And we wouldn't be alone. Plenty of states are doing this, including red states. And it it doesn't seem like the way the conversation's framed is really troubling to me because I think we are just trying to make the richest in our community pay their fair share. While at the bottom end, people are paying way over what they should be paying. And it's just, it's, it's not a fair tax structure and we need to make it more fair. And this is a step in the right direction. And I think the, the messaging piece is critical um, in our community. And I think people like myself who are elected officials 
who are, you know, looking forward to taking this vote are willing to go. I mean, it was tough. I remember sitting at Rogers High School with an auditorium full of teachers and they were talking about increasing uh, salaries and things like that. And then I said, and I assume part of this is that you'll support the cap gains. And it was just like dead silence. So we need to have this like broader conversation, (laughs) right? Like how all this is connected, how we need more sustainable funding for our state budget and how we can make a more progressive tax system. But yeah, at the end of the day, this is targeting, you know, depending where the dial ends up, a very small number of Washingtonians for a very broad benefit. And they're doing this in a lot of other places in the country. And Washington should have a more progressive tax system. Yeah, and let's just maybe just do like a two-minute recap on how regressive our tax system is. We do not have an income tax. And nobody, li- so people, you don't, nobody likes taxes. Uh, I'm, not, I'm pretty comfortable with taxes, but like people in general are reluctant to be taxed more. And I understand that. We have only sales tax, which insanely disproportionately affects people as you go down the income scale. The, the less money you have, the more you are impacted by our close to 9 or 10% sales tax rate. So that means that rich people are never going to pay their fair share because as a share of income, normal folks just need to buy more. You know, the basic necessities of life make up a higher percentage of whatever money you're able to bring home every month. Therefore, more of your income is subject to a greater level of tax the lower down the income spectrum you are, which means that even though I think we all think of, you know, even our conservative friends east of the Cascades, like they think that like, you know, Washington State is all a bunch of like cultural Marxists and communists. It's like actually our tax structure, though, it might be true that we are a pretty progressive legislative state, but our our tax code is among the most regressive in the entire nation. In addition to just being bad for people, it creates this massive gap on like what the aspiration, the progressive aspirations of the legislator in the state come into conflict with what the amount of revenue you're able to raise in that sort of a system as well, correct? Absolutely. And I think disproportionately too, um, our communities of color are impacted heavier and it's just across the board. For Spokane, as a border community to Idaho too, people say, oh, we should be more like Idaho, more like Idaho. And then we look at their tax structure and the amount of dollars that would be there to support a healthier Washington economy is just enormous. And so this is a really, this is important. So a conversation and uh, there's been a lot of leadership. There's, there's a, a tax structure work group that's going, that's actually bipartisan. And it's surprising how these kind of conversations are evolving and moving along. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, but I think we're holding up cap gains, hopefully not too much because I am concerned about past as it is going to the ballot, but we're holding it up as kind of the first sign to show that we can, we are shifting. Yeah. And that when you talk to people and you have that communication with community members, that they're seeing that and they're embracing it, but doing what you just did, Luke, uh, if we can do that, we're going to have to just do that like on repeat over and over. And, and it's, an elected official's job too to get out in front of people and have the conversation and get into the weeds and hope that they will want to get into the weeds um, so we can improve uh, our community. Yeah, it's tough uh, when like you, you know, you like, you know that what you're talking about will help people, but, but I mean, people have, I think justified uh, and, and sometimes unjustified, but like part of what you're talking about with local control, I think part of the impetus for that is like people want to know or feel like they can touch or in some way impact the decisions that are being made on their behalf. So the further away you get from that, the less trust there is. And I understand that our unique problem in Spokane is that there is not as much grassroots organizing around here and therefore the powers of capital, the powers that want to keep the status quo, the powers that want their billionaire to not have to pay their fair share. It's yeah, it's just a little tougher. I think, I think also one of the things is it's tough right now because we just had, you know, a revenue forecast that looked up while we're having this conversation, the stimulus passed and there's federal dollars. I I just think it's important to remember that state revenue estimates don't tell the full story of Washingtonians. Like there's a lot of people struggling during this uh, health and economic crisis and we uh, need to recognize that. So I'm hoping that because of some of this, like, look, I'm glad our state revenues are forecasted up. I am glad that there's a stimulus, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have this broader conversation. And I'm concerned that some people will push back. And then I say, I certainly think my Republican colleagues will push back like, Hey, we're okay. Things are fine. And I think for that bottom third of folks who are struggling, they are absolutely not. I I was reflecting. And again, I was a a much younger person when this happened, when, 0809, the revenue forecast that came out of, out of that recession really gutted the state budget in a way that I think 
we're probably still feeling the effects of. You would know this better than I would. So I was just spent this entire year waiting for an atom bomb to drop. And I'm so basically what I feel like is like these revenue forecasts that are good or better than expected are like, we just dodged a bullet. We did, this is, it's not like free sailing forever. Absolutely. I mean, some of that is those direct payments. We know that getting people cash assistance is not only good for them, it also helps our economy. And I think the stimulus pieces are, uh, have been hugely important as people are really struggling right there. I, I think it's important as well, you know, as we try to balance our, our tax code. I mean, this the cap gains is balancing our tax code, not on the backs of the, the poor, but right. in a more fair way with the richest. And to me, if you just start with that and you step back, I just, I think we can continue to gain traction on that. So I think it's important that we vote that bill. Um, there's a lot of discussion on whether we should, try and um, put the emergency clause back on and then it would go to the Senate where it might fail. And what does that mean? Or pass it as is, and it could have a tough time at the ballot. We'll see. So just, sorry, to, just to, so I understand what was the emergency clause and why is it either on or not on? I'm not even. The emergency clause being removed um, okay. means that, that it will not go into effect in a time frame where it could actually be put on the ballot with the people and it a hundred percent would be put on the ballot. Yeah, and, yeah. and then um, at least with the emergency clause on, it would go into effect and then it could lead us to if need be, which is probably likely the case to have cap gains challenged in court. So we could have a final decision there gotcha. because there are some, some uh, folks who uh, believe it's unconstitutional. And so at least we could set up that court challenge sooner. It wouldn't go to the, the ballot first. And if, the courts ruled that it was constitutional. We'd be in really good shape. So what you're saying, you're in favor of it, trying to add this emergency rule to basically just implement it as quickly as possible. Yes, exactly. So that then you can have the court fight or whatever needs to happen to sort of challenge the legality of it before it has time to go to like a public referendum on the ballot. Yeah. And, and, and I, I totally support, you know, public input, I think in this scenario though, because just, you can see how much trouble even I'm having, um, you know, explaining it that I think it's even more complicated for fo folks to read, you know, these ballot statements uh, that are prepared by the AG's office or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so. so the last thing I wanted to chat about briefly, and it's, we've already gotten so much more depth than this kind of dumb guy argument. I kind of feel like this was like a dumb guy's idea of a smart argument, but like the, <laughs> part of the anti-tax discord was, but it was like, well, if you're just trying to tax billionaires then Bezos can, will just move. He's a billionaire. Like he's got jets. Like we can't tax a billionaire because he's a billionaire. They can just leave. And you know, my first thought was like, well, that's a win-win. But then like, I also don't want to dismiss it as like a structural problem. Right. Cause like anytime you're raising revenue off of a, a group of people, is that something you guys thought seriously about? Did you just think it was rhetoric or, and what would be the impacts if there was like an exodus of billionaires? Well, I just don't think, I mean, we have a great quality of life and yeah. Um, billionaires will have millions of dollars for lawyers and strategies, et cetera. I, I think the, the bottom line is that like balancing our tax code is not about solving a spreadsheet problem. It's, about making lives materially better for everyday Washingtonians. I think a lot of those folks who are super rich actually, you know, when asked to pay more would consider it and yeah. uh, be supportive. And some of them have even tried to lead the way at times. Um, when you talk about what they've benefited from the workforce here uh, in Washington state um, and, and all the good things that we do. So, you know, our state designed an upside down tax code and it predates the pandemic by decades and it's time for our neighbors um, who are facing, you know, such difficult times to get a, you know, a boost. And and I think, um, you know, we've talked a lot about childcare and the working families tax credit. And I think those two things are things that specifically the cap gains tax could go to ensure we, we uh, bring to fruition. So what other legislative priorities are you excited about? What are you, what are you hopeful for? Um, and what else should we, we be thinking about as we're thinking about what, what we can do at the state level to make people's lives better? So from, you know, the house side of things that we sent over, certainly environmental uh, stuff. I, you know, I will see low carbon fuel standards has been an important uh, piece of legislation that we've passed multiple times. I think some of the stuff uh, on police accountability is very much needed and a strong move forward. Rep Jesse Johnson um, fed, from the federal way area has been doing just an amazing effort uh, to, to bring people to the table and have this very important discussion um, so a lot of stuff around policing leadership 
around housing. We did pass just cause off the floor. I think I that's ask about that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, look, we took some amendments cause that's just how the votes lined up. You know, some people were not thrilled about them, but we were moving that forward. And I think that that's a good thing. And so just to be clear, this is, we've talked about this with Terry Anderson and with Ben Stuckert. We're talking about just cause evictions. Um, that we were hoping to happen at the city level did not has not yet happened, but you guys passed it at least out of the house at the state mm-hmm. level to just ensure that like, if you're getting kicked out of your house, there is an, a, a justifiable reason for that absolutely. as a renter, right? Yep, absolutely. And, um, you know, obviously housing is hugely important. I was part of the group and sponsored the legislation to ban source of income discrimination. And that was folks using subsidies. And we uh, saw across the board how people using um, housing vouchers, et cetera, were being discriminated against. I just think ridding our system of housing discrimination, but also um, making sure that people have a fair fair go of it and aren't getting put out on the streets um, is crucial, right? Like at Gonzaga, like that's what I took away, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like you can't get to (laughs) self-actualization if you don't have housing and food and these basics, right? And, you know, we're so in the society, you know, we're like bootstraps, 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 do it without healthcare, do it without food in your belly, do it without housing. And it just, it's really frustrating. Anyway. um, That was a very deft way of uh, working in there that you're a zag. Uh, yeah, go Zags. It's that time. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Zag and a Husky, but I don't talk much about the Huskies. So. At least on this side of the state, I'm sure. Well, but then back back to the whole billionaire tax thing. It's like there's a reason, you know, the, the company I used to work for basically had a pipeline of designers and developers that came from the community colleges that like fit, that like made that work possible at my old, the old agency I used to work for. Microsoft, Amazon, all of these companies have been built on the foundation set by the academic institutions like the University of Washington. And so it's like, even if Bezos leaves, because Bezos could leave, Bezos probably has like a hundred houses in a hundred different countries, like already. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the corporate headquarters is going to move because like, because there's a talent pool that's been built with public funds for God's sake, right? Well, I would hope so. I mean, you know, Boeing has put that gun to our head multiple times and, uh, you know, I hope Amazon doesn't feel that way. And, 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 you know, look at what's going on. Just there's more stuff being built right here on Trent and Spokane. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, but so that wasn't part of the consideration because I think those folks are, actually engaged in the conversation and, and their government affairs folks aren't like, Hey, can you figure out a way to, you know, make Bezos less rich? They're not, they're not, <laughs> you know, they, they get it because who are those consumers? Those consumers, they're all over. And, and, you know, that's just, I, I don't know. I, I the, the argument is just worn and tired to me. Like, yeah, totally. I think actually a lot of these people, the ones who are really trying to game the system, like take a look at yourself in the mirror. That's nefarious stuff, man. Like, yeah, you know, if that's really your, your motivation to get your X billion dollar, um, right. then, you know, maybe we don't want you in Washington state. Like that's, Dude. that's ridiculousness. I love that. I, that. That doesn't bother me at all. And back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing. It's like, where, where does your prime membership fall on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like if we take care of people, if we, they don't have to worry about their healthcare, they don't have to worry about these other literal necessities of life, then they have all of a sudden disposable income to make choices on more consumer good stuff. And as vital as Amazon might feel to our lives because of the convenience that it allows, it's an entirely consumer discretionary business. Like you, nobody has to use Amazon. His billions are built on discretionary spending. So it actually makes sense from a business perspective to create systems that allow people, everybody, to have more discretionary spending for God's sake. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, the very worst case scenario, a lot of this is just cycling dollars back into his pocket. (laughs) Sure. I mean, yeah, like there might, he's going to win no matter what. Like that's. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually think a lot of these folks, like you said, they've benefited greatly from a a robust higher education community and and lots of investments. And those are state investments. I mean, I served with a legislator who once said, you know, like I wish with every public education, there was also a certificate that said, you know, also brought to you by the state X yeah. amount of dollars um, as just so that people could continue to recognize that investment. We really miss that uh, in our community. You know, everybody, it's just like clean water, yeah. a clean environment, roads, schools. These things aren't things that people, the nation of Marcus did on his own, right? Like these yeah. are, these are things that we've done collectively and that's how we're going to, you know, move our community forward. 
All right, so we were talking about just cause, and I can I, I sidetracked us. So what what else? Nah, that's we fine. I like. I, fact, your, I feel uh, like I feel like we should have a part two, but with beer. You <laughs> once, know, like once we can gather, let's do it, man. Let's, yeah, let's do it. So what what else besides just cause are you excited about? I'm I'm really excited about a robust capital budget, and it sounds kind of funny, but you know, I think we're gonna be able to invest a lot in our communities, and there's a lot of great community projects. Um, that we're working on. Uh, I think that puts people to work. I'm excited about a possibility we'll see for a transportation package that would do things like pave the way for a investment to a division bus rapid transit to green belts in our community. But as far as specific policy bills, I think one of the biggest things that we've already passed in the house, when we pass bills that have costs associated, we fund them in our budget. That all is subject to the negotiations at the end, but we did pass the working families tax credit. That's something Lisa Brown put in, you know, over a decade ago, but we've never funded. And that's real money back in people's pocket. And I think again, along with cap gains, along with significant investments in childcare that we can really transform lives for people and, and help. Uh, And I think childcare is one of them too. We passed a bill, Representative Tonneson passed a bill, um, on childcare. And, um, I think, you know, these are all things that are, are huge in this time. Okay. Last thing before I let you go, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Uh, you, you sort of, I was thinking of like any, even asking this question, I might be sort of like dropping, uh, dropping trow and peeing on the third rail here, but you kind of did it yourself on social media. So the public stadium locally, Oh yeah. you want to have that talk? Sure. No, let's have that talk. Look, I get to have opinions too. It turns out. And I have some, yeah, no, I, it's funny. I will say Luke, I, what's interesting is, you know, I get what people are saying on our advisory vote. I think it was rolled out poorly by the former mayor. I don't think that there was a robust discussion around it. I also think we get tons of advisory votes at the state level that say undo, like when we close tax breaks, when we do these types of things, when we raise revenue, that goes on as an advisory vote. And those are overwhelmingly not supported. So I get what people are saying about the engagement. Here's what I think. I think it's fair to have a conversation if something does save money, if it truly does. I also think it's important to say like, what are we trying to do with infill? Where do we want our, you know, our center? Do we want a vibrant downtown core? And I'm happy to be wrong on this. It's just my opinion that it makes the most sense to put a stadium downtown. It makes the most sense to have it on a transit line. It makes sense to help with restaurants and, and folks around there. And I, I, kind of reject this idea that people say that it, I think it's lost that a stadium's getting built one way or another. Right. Um, whether, whether uh, it's out, you know, Northwest where Albie is or, or downtown, it's getting built. Uh, and I, I thought really strongly about considering to go in front of the school board, et cetera. I think that there's some issues too. Like, do we need to figure out, is that a real problem with civic? It sounds like it. And we need to make sure that whether they need a new facility, which they've talked about in this part, or they need money for sounding and the parking piece, all that stuff. I think it can be worked out. I think part of it's jammed, but I think to just reject it outright, like let's have a thoughtful discussion. Now people can disagree about who rolled it out and maybe that's the problem. Like a lot of progressives don't care for the downtown Spokane partnership, uh, et cetera. And so maybe some of that's been the mouthpiece Uh, and and maybe the ship's already sailed. Maybe the school board's not going to do it, but I just didn't think there was a problem with, if you talk from like an urbanist standpoint and having a like vibrant downtown Here's the one thing that maybe we should have considered. Maybe we should have had a broader conversation on the podium because I absolutely think between the two, the stadium is the, the you the know, the go the is the go-to, right? Like, sorry, I'm probably going to get all kinds of hate mail from the PFD, but, and I'm hopeful and I want it to be successful because it's being built and, you know, et cetera, but. Well, there is a tremendous amount of confusion around that. People don't, they're, they're like, people are like, what is that thing we're building? If not a stadium, uh, the podium just kind of happened. And I think a lot of people were confused about it or, or just didn't know about it. And all of a sudden something new is breaking ground. And then and I do think that can contribute to people's feelings of powerlessness. Like they're just like, Oh, wow. Who, what, where the, where the hell did this come from? You know that I'm an urbanist. My parents are probably a little mad at me that I don't spend as much time on the, you know, with them on the North side. Like <laughs> I, I am a absolutely committed to downtown. And my concern, if it, you know, everything you're saying sounds good to me in theory. So I've spent two years of my life not in Spokane, Washington, one of which was in Florence at Gonzaga studying nice. abroad. The other, and you know, the, the Coliseum in Rome is right downtown. So let's just not, you know, there you go. This. so back when we're, and how did I get ripped out? How did, how did the guy with the Italian last name not get to go to Florence for at least the summer? I don't know. That's a bummer. I really feel bad about that. So, uh, I, the other year I spent was on Queen Anne in Seattle up the hill from Key arena. It's not intuitively clear to me 
that things like stadiums, things things that are massive, that are event based, that obviously bring the community together. Go go over to Gonzaga, whether you have a ticket or not, on game night on, in, in a non COVID year, and see the way the Gonzaga Bulldogs bring people together. That's amazing. What about all the times that those these things aren't in use though, right? Like so, right. when I think about Key Arena, there was a bar that I got dragged to on you know the one New Year's Eve that I spent in Seattle that was like a fifty dollar cover, and it like I and lost my mind, and I'm still not over, and I'm still talking about <laughs> twenty years later. But that bar, which is literally directly across the street from Key Arena, changed hands I think three times the year that I lived there, right? And then I think about things like what you, I think most recently was called the tailgater, that bar that's in the, in the, in the parking lot of the value village across the street from our arena that changes hands all the time too. So I don't know that like the case has been adequately made that when these massive infrastructural things that are only used once a week at most or whatever, like, is that really contributing to vibrancy? What I'm saying is as an urbanist, as a committed urbanist, it does seem like stadia like this create dead zones. No, that's, I think that's fair and all that should be looked at. I mean, I think there, there's places that are doing it really well and they're seeing significant economic impacts, but I, I think it's a fair question. My thing with putting it out there was like, this is where I, what I think we should at least consider it. And it was like, yeah. to, to not be able to have like a uh, kind of a thoughtful discussion debate, it seems like it was worth it, particularly because I think it was poorly rolled out and poorly communicated. If people are hanging it all on that advisory vote, like I think we should have all these conversations, but if you're hanging it all on that advisory vote, I think that was done poorly. There was bad communication. I think the mayor went at it alone. I also think kind of as far as the usage, um, yeah, you got to show the the plan for how, I mean, like look at right now, the, the arenas in a public health crisis being used as a, you know, a mass vaccination site testing. And, but also, and that's why I don't think it should be banked on a soccer team inking and particularly like I am admittedly, i coach soccer, I play soccer, but I think that that discussion, whether you have a soccer team or not should occur. I think what the soccer team brings to it is that those additional uses, I think if you can talk about a concert, you know, concerts that could come in and other things like that, I I think that it's all just worthy of discussion. In the end, um, the school board should truly just make the best decision for the, the, the kids and families from an economic standpoint. Like if they stand to save a bunch of money, let's even just say it's a wash that between you know, I think the concern is, let's say it doesn't create a dead zone, but maybe there's not this boon of economic development. Then let's say it's just kind of across the board. It's an okay decision, but it saves all this money for the school and 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 the kids and, and provides some, some additional access there. I just think it's a conversation worth the hat. And, and yeah. I, I do get frustrated sometimes with, you know, some of the folks that you would consider my base who is like, we can't, we shut down conversation before it even happens. And I, I have drawn, you know, like people say, don't talk politics and religion at the dinner table. I like to start my conversations that way. You like um, to start them with politics and end with religion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, why not? I mean, you know, like we need to, honestly, that's why I love the opportunity to come on it, here and just chat is because we need more conversations not on social media. We need more of that neighborhood discussion as a state representative. You know, my neighbors are asking questions. Let me tell you, like, it's not always fun. (laughs) You know, that, that brings it really close to home, but that's not only my job, but I think that's what we owe to our community. I believe in kind of the philosopher, the civic life, you know, that we need to engage and we have to bring that back. January 6th. I'm not, now I'm going way deep from the stadium, but it's a good way to end. Yeah, January 6th shows what happens when we do not have space for these conversations anymore. And it's one of the best things that I had in my life is I moved to D.C. with a suitcase. I lived in an oversized closet in a row house with a bunch of Republican staffers (laughs) and um, an actor. And I was right on D.C. And one of my roommates worked for the most conservative center of the U.S. Senate. We would go out and have brunch and we'd yell at each other. We find some things we agree upon. There's no space for that anymore. So anyway, the stadium was good for me. Like I made a conscious decision that I knew there would be some blowback because I think it was worth discussion where we end up. That's fine. But people saying like it's like some sort of betrayal to have a conversation about where a stadium should go. It's just like bring it on like that just. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense to me. And and I hope people want that in their public officials too, that won't just milk toast it and we'll jump in. And you know what? Sometimes we're going to disagree. And honestly, sometimes I'll be wrong that, you know, and maybe on this one, I don't got it right. My gut tells me that if you're going to build a stadium anyway, uh, we should put it in the downtown core. But I think what you bring up on just the dead spaces and stuff like that, that deserves, that warrants investigation. Yeah. And I certainly think the civic too, if there's, you know, that should be part of the conversation because that's a a jewel for our community. Absolutely. Um, 
Uh, well, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate the candor. Uh, <laughs> so the last question I like to ask everybody, and, and then I'll let you go, is what what's giving you hope right now? I mean, this has been a very productive legislative session, so I'm sure you'll have no shortage of things to point to. But again, thinking about January 6th, thinking about how there are some really entrenched and seemingly intractable problems in our in our nation, in our state, locally, a lot of dysfunction to go along with some some function. Like what what's giving you hope these days? Well, for one, I've moved away from a very dark period in January 6th, followed by driving to my first day of legislation, legislative session by armed National Guards um, through barricades. Yeah, I feel like we are, we have to remain vigilant. There's a lot going on, but we have turned the page. Hopefully, I'm hopeful that just the, the rhetoric and the conversations that we can have are bringing to a point where we're putting ideas back out there again. And we're, um, you know, we do like our team sports in this country. It's getting to the point where it's going to just, you know, I've got a 10 and a seven year old. I'm worried about them turning on to the hopeful. I think we're the fact that scientifically we've done things, amazing feats that the, the vaccines seem to be getting out and um, uh, we're getting healthier is, is hopeful that people are, are getting back to work, but that we can have these conversations. That's why I'm hopeful. I've seen that. And I just want to remind folks that the Washington state legislature is not our national legislature. 95% of what we <laughs> vote on goes out um, bipartisan, if not unanimous. And there's a bunch of good people that have different ideas. And I'm, I'm hopeful about the conversation and that we are having a reset. I guess I would say I'm hopeful that I feel a reset coming on and maybe that's naive, but um, I think it's desperately needed and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to buy into that we're resetting and, and we're all coming together again. So you always run the risk of feeling naive if you have hope and you trust people to get there. Right. So it kind of like naivete is like what happens when hope and trust kind of go bad or whatever, or maybe you're overly hopeful and overly trusting, but like those are the kind of like the bedrocks of what civil makes civilization work, right? Like hope and trust in, you know, hope for right. the future and trust in our fellow people. If feeling occasionally naive or feeling burned by that every once in a while, like that's kind of the, it's kind of the cost of doing this sort of work and, and having some sort of hope that we can, we can actually come together, even though it seems like we so rarely do to make things happen. I agree. And the, the more opportunities we provide ourselves, that means while technology is a useful tool, that means like getting back to, you know, as COVID ends, getting back to like dinners with neighbors and parks and talking to people. And, and um, I think really um, looking at intent, I've seen that change, like entering conversations, entering things that people are going to it with good intent. I think we have shifted a little bit too far to like everybody in their corner, everybody starting from this place where they want to do destruction and harm. And yeah. we got to have a reset, honestly, just for our own well-being, our mental health and as a society. But we didn't talk about, you know, our Congresswoman, and I think she's failed us. And I'm just going to get that in at the end. I think, you know, you talk about the opposite <laughs> of hope. That is that is the opposite of hope. Somebody who was fanning the flames of insurrection and, and uh, didn't say it. Sorry, you wanted to end on a positive note, so <laughs> it's all right. It's hard. It's a, you, can, you can only you can only get, stay positive for so long. Yeah, I appreciate how long you did. I did. I will say this: look, look, we have an awesome community, and I love what you all have done. I love what so many have brought to say, like that whole idea. You know, Spokane doesn't suck. Like we are, you know, it doesn't at all. Like, and I know you and I are both born and raised here, and spend a lot of time here, but. We got a lot going for us, and I'm hopeful that uh, my kids and, and their friends and their neighbors, they can choose to find a job here. They can grow up here uh, if, if they want to. Go explore if that's what you want to do, but we can provide a life for particularly those, you know, a zip code shouldn't be, you know, determining whether you're going to be incarcerated. Absolutely. Whether or not you're going to get a high level of education your income level, et cetera. And so that's, that's the goal here. And I think we got a lot going on for Spokane. And I absolutely agree with you on that. And I, th I think if we can figure out this housing crisis and figure out a jobs piece, like Spokane's best days are ahead of it, I think, or it's best days in a very, very long time. And it, it just seems like the trajectory is ever upward. And, and then I guess then the, the moral uh, referendum on us as a city and as a state and as a nation, but specifically right now, this, this acute crisis we're feeling in Spokane, the referendum on the, cause the trajectory is going to go up no matter what. I guess the question is, is how, how many people do we bring along on that upward trajectory and how many people do we leave behind? Right. Right. And it's there, you know, when I first ran for office and knocked thousands of doors you know, you think you know your community through and through, 
that experience has been one that's been the most um, informing in my life. Mm -hmm. I saw things that, and just had conversations, but saw things that I don't think people even that have grown up here, lived their whole life have really understand um, the amount of people that are left behind right here in our community. And we, we got to change it. We owe that to ourselves and that's just, it's just the right thing to do. And I I think we're up for the the challenge and we got to not just have people think that the only way they can make change is by running for office or getting elected, but this is, uh, civic action is a daily thing. It's yeah, not just, just one communication on a bill or one thing at the city council level. It's it's ongoing. It's work. Yeah. And I appreciate all the people that put in the work. All right, man. Well, let's leave it there. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Cool. This is, uh, yeah. And thanks for uh, sticking with me. Thanks for having the best tech of anybody I've ever interviewed. Oh, thanks for good. sticking with me. Despite having good tech, we still had some technical difficulties, as seems to be uh, par for the course here on Range. Uh, appreciate that. And I appreciate the openness. I appreciate you <laughs> having the, the stadium conversation uh, and all that other stuff, too, man. This was a really, no really enjoyable conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Thanks again to Marcus for coming on the show. And, you know, for the record, I think he's right. Not necessarily about the downtown stadium. I still have some pretty serious reservations about that as a project. But insofar as we need to engage with our community members, even when we disagree in respectful, though potentially heated debate around topics, that's the only way I think we're going to get back to any, at least locally. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm not exactly... I'm not exactly chomping at the bit to have a tete-a-tete with Mitch McConnell or even half of the Democrats in the National Senate. Like, uh, I think talking with Joe Manchin would probably be a profoundly frustrating endeavor. But at least locally, we have to have these conversations. And I'm glad that he was up for it. Also want to thank, as always, my man Connor Bacon on the ones and twos, helping me out with these edits. Uh, That work is invaluable. To the extent we're getting closer to doing these damn things weekly, it is largely due to Connor's efforts. So thank you again, as always, so much for that, my man. That's it for me this week, guys. Have a good week. Bye. Oh, no, one more thing. Sorry for the Bradley Whitford impression. God, I'm still thinking about it. But again, I'm going to take it on the chin in the interest of transparency. I'm leaving that awful impression in. All right, everyone. Have a good week. Bye.